The next three lectures are going to bore you, but they're probably fundamentally the most important thing I'm going to teach you in three years is financial statements because they are used every single day. Who's teaching these future veterinarians business anyway? Well, he is. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, a part of the VetX Leaders community online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I'm your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today's guest is Dr. Murray Jelinski, a professor and Alberta Chair in Beef, Cattle, Health, and Production Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan's Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Canada, obviously. I wanted to talk to someone who's teaching business topics to tomorrow's veterinarians, and that's just what he does. He was tasked with it many years ago. We need more business education for veterinarians. You're going to teach it. So here's what he did, what he does, and a few insights his regular surveys of veterinary practices in Western Canada have shown him about personal finance, non-clinical skills, and most importantly, hiring and scarcity. How did they wrangle the large animal guy to do the business courses? Did you already have a natural bent for that? How come you got pulled into this? Yeah, very good question. I always start off my lectures to the first year vet students with a little bit of a bio. And to your point, why is Murray Jelinski standing in front of this class? (laughs) And so I graduated out of the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in 1985, sadly, well before most of my students were born. And then I was in mixed animal practice for seven years. And when I graduated, and it's hard to believe given the shortage of food animal practitioners, that it's sort of a pervasive problem around the world right now, it was difficult to get a job in 1985 because we just came out of a recession. So I took a job here in town, didn't really like it. And I went out, set up my own practice within a couple months of graduation in a small town called Mooseman, Saskatchewan, on the Manitoba-Saskatchewan border, town about 2,500. I'm a city kid. And interestingly enough, I went to a rural practice, started my own practice. My wife, Cindy, she grew up in a town of 500. I was often asked at the time, well, why is a city kid out here? And I used to say, I don't know, why don't you go ask my brother? Because my older brother, who graduated actually a year behind me, is a very successful food animal veterinarian in Alberta with a large feedlot practice. So it does highlight this point about, you know, the at times the inability to attract people to rural practice and they have to come from an agricultural background. That's not true. Done lots of surveys over the years of where do people come from and, and where do they go? There is a, a greater odds for people to come from a rural area to go back to a rural practice. But we have a lot of practices in Western Canada populated by people that, such as myself, grew up in a large center. So continuing on to try to answer your question, yeah. uh, after seven years, I came back and I did a master's degree uh, at the vet school. And then I went and joined a company called back then, Herx Roussel Vet, that through all the mergers and acquisitions that would today now be Marielle. And I did uh, product development regulatory affairs for three years. And then I was poached by a, a small biotech company here in Saskatoon. Uh, we we're developing some pretty novel technologies and GNRH and vaccines and things like that. And that company got uh, bought out by uh, an American entity out of uh, Baltimore called Metamorphics. And I became the general manager of that biotech company. So 
I think when you look around, most faculties, a lot of them don't have business experience. So I set up my own practice. I operate my own practice. I was in the pharmaceutical world. And, and just if you're in a large pharma, you automatically get exposed to business and you get exposed to a lot of middle management training and things like that. And then I was moved on and became a general manager. So I think when, when they're looking around saying who could teach additional business classes, who would that be? And I enjoy it. So at the time, uh, we already had two credit union units or about 24 lectures for the third year students. And we'd okay, bring so it was in just in third year. Business was just in third year. Exactly. Just in third year. And we bring in people from like Dr. Tate, who's very well known here in Canada, veterinarian, MBA, has been very engaged in business, has his own book on business. And so he would come in and just pound through lectures in a week or so. And I think if my recollection is correct, we went through an accreditation visit. And one of the things, you know, you're going to get from your accreditation visit is things you could improve upon. And at the time, our associate dean, Bruce Grant, came down and said, you know, they'd like to see more business. And so okay. we're going to give you the first year business class to create. And I said, what do you want me to teach, Bruce? And he goes, I don't know. Go figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so teach business. And I knew John Tate had already, you know, he's covering off a lot of marketing and Right. Things like that, practice valuations. So what did that leave Murray Jelinski to do? Right. And I think what hit me very early on is that the students really don't know much about, I hate to say it, it's kind of life skills, just basic getting a loan, you know, paying off debt, saving for retirement. How does a credit card really work? I spend a half an hour to an hour telling them the do's and don'ts about a credit card. And... I suspect there's a lot of people in the general population don't really appreciate how credit card uses. It can be, it's a double-edged sword, right? It can be the best thing ever for your credit rating, and it can absolutely be the death of you for your credit rating too. And so that's kind of how it started. You know, I started teaching just one credit in first year, so 11, 12 lectures and a final exam. And then when COVID hit, life changed for everybody. And I was told, Here's the third year class. It starts next week and you have 24 lectures to go. <laughs> so giddy up and go do that. So I took on the third year class and then over time that's evolved. And so now we teach basically 12 lectures in each year. So okay. having full control over it, it's taken a while to kind of develop what exactly the themes I want to cover across the three years, but we're finally getting there and finally getting there. And so... Yeah, sorry, probably a little bit wordy for, for answering your question, but that's kind of the evolution of myself and how I sort of came about to be sort of teaching the, the three business courses in Saskatoon. I had two follow-up questions because of that, and I'm going to try to remember the first one, but because you just mentioned that thing where they added, maybe they couldn't get Tate in anyway, we want you to do the third, and according to this thing, it looks like you've got, so now you do some things in the first, second, and third year. But I'm wondering the big pushback, at least for many years, when I used to work on Veterinary Economics Magazine, the big pushback from colleges, understandably college faculty at veterinary schools, was if you add more practice management, if you add more personal finance, if you add more stuff, for instance, you teach on demographics and trends in the veterinary profession, 
that's less medicine. So I'm surprised that they were like, hey, we want to add stuff because then doesn't that mean somebody's thing gets cut? And then that's always part of the pushback I hear is that that's the thing. You're going to have to cut some medicine out of these the time. That's a very insightful comment. And I'll credit Bruce Gron. Bruce Gron, I think, you know, he was our associate dean of academics at that time. You know, they told him to, you know, you need to make some changes. I think the suggestion came. He could have probably said, you know, there's no time and moved on. Correct. But, you know, Bruce, Bruce was a little bit like I, graduated a little bit ahead of me, but we both did our master's degrees at the same time. And we both came out of private practice. So as you can appreciate, and nothing wrong with it, but a lot of our faculty, they go from DBM, internship, residency, specialization, academia, sure. and they don't go, I don't want to use the word real world because I don't think that's fair. I think it's derogatory, but they've never had the private practice aspect to it where, you know, they've been forced to look at the economics of things. And right. so, again, not to say that they don't do it down in our vet hospital. They do talk about that with the students quite a bit. But I think Bruce had that perspective and said, you know, we, we do need to do something more here to make our students successful. It's not just teaching them how to do surgery and medicine. They have to, you know, they have to make money. And one of the first things I say in first year, within the first five minutes, you are here to make money. And money is not a bad thing. Money is a good thing. Profit is not a bad word. It's a good thing because the more profit you make, the more successful your practice is, the more you know, equipment you can offer, the more services you can offer, the more veterinarians you can hire. In the long run, you're benefiting the consumer, the customer, your clients. So quit thinking about profit always. Oh, you know, you're making profit. Profit's good. Profit helps with retention of employees, uh, whether they're technicians or veterinarians. And so it is a mindset because I think, you know, let's face it, we have Students coming in somewhat altruistic, you know, they're here to save animals' lives and things like that. But there is that aspect of money. And as we can all appreciate now, it's a lot more expensive to go to vet school now than it was when I went through in 1985. And, you know, we have lots of students, particularly in the U.S., that have debt loads of two, three, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000. They have to earn a decent wage and there has to be a profit there or you know, in the long term, the profession will suffer. Do you get pushback? So if you're talking about first year vet students, so these many of these students went through high school, went straight into college with the intent they were going to go to vet school, and then boom, now they're in vet school. They have been, in fact, focused on science and animals. They are motivated by science, medicine, and animals. And then you show up and you're like, you got to remember profit. There must be some element of eye rolling. When you get pushback, what kind of pushback well, these are only first-year students, so maybe they don't. But do you get pushback about, like, this isn't why I'm here. Don't push this profit stuff on me. It's a really good question because whenever I mention that, I look up. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking exactly what you just said. They're all going, no, Dr. Jelinski, you're no, you're just greedy. I don't. And so the other thing is I do tell them, again, in my first five minutes, you must wonder why you're here. If you wanted to be in business, you would have went to the, you know, the College of Commerce across the street. Correct. Right? I didn't come here for a business class. Yeah, I didn't come here for a business. And that's when I get into this is mandated by the Council on Education. It is a requirement. Just as similar, we are going to teach you communication skills. 
you know, that is an important part of practice. That is not cutting and diagnosing and things like that. And so you need to be somewhat, have a better holistic view of better medicine. And ultimately, our job is to get you out the other end to be successful. And well, some, I taught financial statements last week. Okay. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, that's <laughs> exciting. And I preface it with, I don't know if you remember the agricultural wheel or they got all this interaction of minerals and it's just a confusing wheel. And I said, you know, (laughs) veterinarians always want to learn about nutrition because they think it's important. But I said, when we go to teach them nutrition and I'm secretary treasurer of a a district off of American Association of Bovine Practitioners. So we just had our annual conference and we always ask veterinarians, what do you want to learn? We want to learn more nutrition. We bring in a nutritionist and they all roll their eyes. That was boring. I said, (laughs) the next three lectures are going to bore you, but they're probably fundamentally the most important thing I'm going to teach you in three years is financial statements because they are used every single day. And, you know, they're used to get loans, they're used for your tax filings, they're used to evaluate your practices and on and on, the health of it. And I said, some of you will embrace these in the future. A bunch of you will just roll your eyes and never embrace them. And in between, let's face it, 16, 80% of them are going to be, and this astounds people, that when I look at all the data that we generated in Western Canada and surveys, 68-80% of our private practitioners are actually owners. Partners are sole owners. So if you think, when I tell them again in that first lecture, if you think you're going to escape business, no. There's very few of you that are going to grab your lunch pail in the morning and go in and work for a corporate and come home and say, <laughs> I don't... The technician wasn't nice to me, but I just told the practitioner manager to deal with it. And somebody didn't pay their bill and it's not my fault. There's very few of you that are going to escape the day-to-day management and financials are critical. So sit back and listen and absorb some basic things out of financial statements because I don't want to listen to your future employers in five years saying, I don't know what you teach them in business. They don't even know what a balance sheet is. No. I taught them that. Whether they remembered it is another thing, but I did teach them that. One of the things which I find interesting is what they really enjoy is over the years, I've taken three or four different law classes here on university, and they love contracts. They love the law. And, and And so at times, you can almost get them as excited about law is about cutting a dog for whatever, right? And so they do get turned on a little bit by clearly the content, right, of the lecture. And the other thing that I've done, because I think even though I can tell them I do have a a business background and I have taken 10 or 12 business courses, law courses that I just alluded to through the university over the years, I bring in uh, special lectures. And during COVID, it was easy because I just recorded them. I have three or four interviews, I guess, with practitioners. And I'll be like, Brendan, you know, tell me about how do you use financial statements or can we move on to mentoring? Can you tell me about if I came to work for you, how would you mentor me at your practice or right. and things like that? So it, it gives them a little bit of it's just not Murray Jelinski, the professor. It's this is actual people that are using what I'm trying to teach you in a real world situation. So I think that helps. It takes more effort. But I think that uh, drives home the point that these are not abstract things that I'm coming up with. Currently, right now, I'm teaching about investing. So investing for the future. So here in Canada, we talk about RSPs, 401ks down there. 
And how do you start that? What do you invest in? What's an ETF? What's a mutual fund? What's a bond? You know, why does bond prices go down? I thought that's fixed income. I thought that's secure. And we walk through all that stuff. And I like to go on to like Yahoo Finance in the morning, find an interesting article, walk into my lecture and say, look what I found today and go read this. Yesterday, we were talking about the pricing of bonds, the potential default of the U.S. on a treasury bill. Could that happen? We don't normally think so. But right now, you're dealing with the debt ceiling thing. That's a real world issue. That's a real world issue. And so I try to keep it current, relevant, I guess. To your point, how do you keep them from rolling their eyes? And yeah, you, you can usually sense the pulse of the class they're either asking questions or they got their head down and they might be playing who knows what on their computer right today's show is brought to you by vetex international now are people the major pain point in your practice if so you're not alone over 90 percent of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue at the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions a poorly articulated vision toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, Listen to a free training webinar or apply. Visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. So way at the beginning, you mentioned something which I thought was surprising. And I know having I went and poked around on the internet about you, and I saw that you do most recently the two most a couple of the two most recent things that popped up in 2022 were two sort of survey results that you had published with other people. One on hiring and salary, hiring and pay, and the other on demographics. And what you told me earlier in this conversation surprised me about you're in Western Canada. Hey, most of you are going to go out and own. And we watched in the United States the number of people, the students who said they were going to own. So it could be we're in the same situation. Students in the U.S. say they're not going to own and they don't want to be entrepreneurs or there are fewer of them, but then they wind up doing it. But there is a lot more corporate practice and a lot more chains in the United States. Is Western Canada still very unpenetrated by large chains and unpenetrated by chain-owned practices? Really good question. So I think it's my second or third lecture of the first years we talk about trends in the profession. What are the trends in the profession we have? And a lot of the vet students may not like this word, but it's feminization. It's commonly used. And yeah, there's more women coming in and there are more women out in the workforce as veterinarians. Yeah. And so what's the implications that there's lots of implications on practice ownership, full-time equivalents on how much they're working and things like that. The other trend is corporatization, you know, and then we also have consolidation within agriculture. So we have far fewer producers uh, and things like that. So on the topic of corporatization, you're absolutely right. The banfields of the world didn't get into Canada earlier because we're a little bit tighter in our regulations of allowing, you know, corporatization of our clinics. 
but that has changed over the years. That has changed. So now we're seeing some larger entities such as VCA. I would have to look now. They probably have 150 plus practices across Canada and they're growing. So corporatization is certainly gaining momentum and that is going to change, you know, for sure practice ownership in the future. My classmate, Danny Joffe, is a very senior partner within the VCA group here in Canada. And so I have an interview just with Danny that I show the students. And we talk about, you know, Danny, where are we going? Is is veterinary profession going to become the McDonald's of the world? It's VCA owes everybody. And whether I go to VCA practice in, in Regina, Saskatoon, or Vancouver, right. I always get the same spiel. And he says, no, I don't. He says, Murray, to be perfectly honest, we're a sliver of the market. You know, I don't see that. He says, in his, even his view, veterinarians still tend to be somewhat entrepreneurial and they still like to kind of have their own ownership. And plus, I think you're seeing my brother who has the large feedlot practice. He also is involved with a group called Mosaic Group and they're buying up mixed animal practices in Western Canada. And so they're recognizing that, you know, the typical corporate model, sort of the almost like a franchise franchisee type model. No, that's not what they do. They might just come in and say, we just want a part ownership of the clinic. So there's lots of different ways to get around that, that people still remain as owners. And I think right. Danny's model in, with the VCA here in Canada still incorporates that. And so it's there. And I think you will see, as we've seen when you look in the UK and the US and elsewhere, practice ownership is probably trending down for sure, just because of the corporatization. But there's still a lot of practices out there that are not corporate, right? And do you get a feel, I thought it was also interesting, this brings me back to the very beginning where you mentioned, hey, they might have the idea that they're not going to own. And I thought it was also interesting. And if they come from urban and suburban areas, which is, that is a huge shift that's happened in the United States over the past couple decades. A lot of veterinarians, there used to be more veterinarians from rural areas coming in, veterinary students from rural areas. And now a lot of them come in from suburban and urban areas, and the only experience they've had, they've grown up with cat and dog practices. So yep. that's typically maybe exotics, but less experience with farm, animal, and rural. And the pitch is always, hey, we have to get more of these kids from the rural areas because the urban and suburban students won't want to go there. So you're saying that actually you see that a lot or in a significant number of kids who come in saying – I'm not going to do that. And then when they go out down the line, you're like, oh, you find out they started or they went working in a rural area? Let's face it. Well, a lot of them clearly have made the plunge into this is their career. You know, yep. we all, you know, my daughters are in their 30s and I've watched, well, lots of teenagers come out of high school wondering, I don't know what to do. And they go to university and they, they don't really know what to do. Right. And then when they get on the track to become veterinarians, you know, at least they know what they want to be as a veterinarian. But even then... Even then in first year, I always start again in that first lecture, show of hands. How many in the room want to be companion animal? How many want to be right. food animal? How many want to be mixed? I bet every year we have 40 to 50% that say they want to be mixed. And when I stop to think about that, the reason why they do that, because in first year, they don't really know, right? And so it's like, right. uh, I, I want to be mixed because I'm not sure what I want to do. So I, I guess I'm the other but when we track all these people from the time, and I've done it multiple surveys that I've published, what do you want to do in first year? What did you want to do in fourth year? What did you do at graduation? And what are you doing three years out? Okay. There's a very interesting flow, and it really relates to what we see as ostensibly the shortage of food animal, mixed animal, rural practitioners, is that in Saskatoon, probably 40% of our students are interested in mixed animal or rural practice when they leave. 
within three to five years, half of them are gone, right? And where do they go? They all go to small animal. You don't see many starting in small animal and wanting to go into mixed or food. That just doesn't happen, right? So it's this whole concept of you might think what you know what you want to do in first year, but I'm here to tell you, keep your ears open, that you know, when you're listening to a lecture on TPLO surgeries and you're thinking, I'm never going to do that, you better think <laughs> about that because half of you that just put your hand up said you're going to be bonafide mixed animal practitioners, you're not. You're not. And so when you sit here and go, I don't know why I'm taking a business class because this is not what I'm here for. I'm here to save animals. Right. And they're sure I'm going to be an associate or I'm going to be an associate yeah. in a suburban practice just like I grew up with. That'll be it. Exactly. So I try to impress upon them to sit back and listen. We've been doing this for 50 to 60 years. We actually know we should be teaching you. We're kind of protecting you from yourself, from making a bad decision. We want you to be a well-rounded practitioner when you leave here that allows you that latitude to make decisions. And being a practice owner, many of you will be a practice owner for a simple reason. You hit the glass ceiling. You know, you're making 100, 120, 130 as an associate, and you're looking at the partners making 150 to 200 and say, well, that's what I want. Well, if you want that, then go to the bank and we'll cut you in and we'll give you some shares. <laughs> so that's, you know, I impress upon them constantly, risk and reward, risk and reward. The higher the risk, the higher the reward. You want to just go through life, which is great if that's what you want to do and not be a practice owner. Great, you'll get paid X. If you want to be a little more risky, then you're going to go to the bank and you're going to invest in the business and you're going to get a higher reward, ideally. So, can I ask when it comes so to thinking about personal finance, practice finance, entrepreneurship, all things that have to do with business, business, so the money part, the numbers part of the business, and you mentioned client communication too. When it comes to management and leadership, do you think, do you encourage, or do you hear a lot of students saying, well, I'm going to get, even if they're going to go own, I'm going to get a good practice manager who's going to take care of some of the stuff for me. I'm going to be a partner with a good practice manager. Or do you try to impart, or do they think they need, I need to become an excellent manager. I need to become an excellent leader. Do they have that feeling already in school? I don't think they do. I don't think they do. I'll ask them. Okay. A really good example. The other day we're talking about markup on drugs, telling about inventory and how do you do inventory? I said, what's the average markup on drugs? Anybody. I said, you've already showed me in the first lecture that all of you worked in a small animal or you worked in a clinic last year. What is an average markup? You've all seen bills coming out. You've seen, what is that? And finally someone said, I think it's about 100%. I said, good for you. Yeah, sure. That sounds about right. But a lot of them really, they don't really have a good sense. Even though they've many of them worked in veterinary practices, I don't think they have a really good sense right now. And I think it takes a year or two for them to really get out. I think if they were to review my lectures a year or two out, they get a lot more out of them yeah. than, than they do now, right? And I'm always aware of that. So one of the things that I don't teach, that I know that other programs teach, I don't get into... You know, let's talk about inventory control. How many turnovers a year are you going to? I mentioned it when I talk about financial statements and, you know, there's different metrics for analyzing your statements, quick ratios and turnovers. But that's as far as I go. I fully recognize that I'm just 
I'm introducing terms to them. I'm introducing concepts to them so that when they're in a practice next summer and someone, the owner says, oh, I have to go see the accountant. We're going to go over my books. Oh, what's that mean? No, no, you, you should know what that is. Or, you know, I looked at our income statement this morning and I see our expenses are quite high this month. I don't expect them to go and look at a financial statement and tell their boss, yeah, this is interesting. Yeah, are you aware of these concepts? You can reach out to Dr. Murray Jelinski at murray.jelinski, J-E-L-I-N-S-K-I, at usask.ca. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. Did you love it? Leave a review wherever you listened. Tell your friends in VetMed about us. And remember, this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to solving your leadership headaches in our VedEx Leaders community. Learn more at drdavenickel.com. And until next time, just want you to know, I appreciate you.